You're listening to a sermon from Midtown Presbyterian Church in Phoenix, Arizona. If you'd like to learn more about Midtown and its ministry, please visit us at midtownpres.org or follow us on Instagram or Facebook. On June 17th, 2015, 12 members of Mother African Methodist Episcopalian Church in Charleston, South Carolina, welcomed a young white man into their evening Bible study. Upon arrival, he took a seat next to the pastor, but he didn't carry a Bible with him into this Bible study. He carried only a pistol and 88 bullets. He arrived with the hopes of starting a race war, and that evening, Dylan Roof killed nine innocent black Christians, including the pastor of this community, Reverend Clementa Pinckney. Roof was arrested that day and tried soon after. And at his preliminary hearing, there were some relatives of those who had been killed that day. And they spoke a message that rocked the world. Through tears, they explicitly retold the story of that tragic day. They named the hurt and the horror and the evil and the pain that Dylan had inflicted upon them and upon their family members. And then in the face of Dylan Roof, in the face of an American justice system that has harmed and oppressed African Americans for hundreds of years, they said three incredible words. We forgive you. Could you do the same? And I ask you that question because I ask myself that question. Could I do the same? See, many of us today love the concept of forgiveness. We love the idea until we have something or someone to forgive, right? Until it gets up close and personal, and then we find a different desire deep within us, a desire for retribution, for vengeance, for punishment of the evildoer. And that's always been a thing for us. Humans have always, for as long as we've existed, loved the idea of vengeance. We've built our civilizations not on forgiveness, but on retribution, on punishing evildoers. Listen to this quote from uh, famous Greek philosopher Aristotle. It's fascinating. He says, To take vengeance on one's enemies is nobler than to come to terms with him. For to retaliate is just, and that which is just is noble. And further, a courageous man ought not to allow himself to be beaten. This is one of the fathers of Western philosophy and Western ethics. Somebody we deeply trust and learn about in our academic institutions. And he advocates for vengeance. Back in ancient Egypt, they had a fascinating practice. They would take uh, pieces of pottery, and they'd write the names of their enemies on those pieces of pottery, and then they'd fill the pottery with curses on their enemies. They'd write them out. These were called execration texts. And then they'd take that piece of pottery and shatter it on the ground because they believed it had some sort of magical power to both curse their enemies and shatter their enemies. And just for good measure, they had the religious leaders go ahead and pee on the pottery as well just to make sure we've covered our bases, just to make sure we've cursed our enemies, just to make sure they get as shattered as possible. And lest we think we're free of this in our world today, friends, we do this all the time. Our world is full of execration texts. We make a new one every year. It stars Liam Neeson. He always is seeking vengeance for someone. Every movie, he's got something out for someone. We allow Liam Neeson to take out our vengeance on the bad people. We pay millions of dollars to watch it happen. We put it in the words of our superheroes. In the latest Batman movie, he literally says, I am vengeance, right? Social media is one giant vengeance machine, and this week has shown it. 
If you disagree with me, you hate me. And therefore, I have to hate you. I have to seek your destruction. That's how social media works. And most often, we do this. We seek retribution. We seek vengeance because we think it will bring us peace and justice. We think that that's actually the way to peace and justice. We think if we can just get rid of the bad people or punish the bad people, then we can finally get on with our good society, right? With all of us good people. We do that in the big picture, but we also do it in the small picture. We think, you know, if I can just make that person pay, if I can just watch them be punished or suffer, then I can get peace, then I can move on from this pain. How's that worked out for us? Miserably. Our society is no more just than it's ever been, no more good than it's ever been. We're just as divided from one another. And these little grudges that we hold against one another, these little resentments that we hold, weigh us down. They don't free us. They don't promise or give, they don't give the fulfillment they, they promise. There's a study done in uh, the Journal of Behavioral Medicine a few years ago. They found a direct connection between harboring resentment and heart disease, high blood pressure, and chronic illness. Harboring resentment, harboring vengeance in your heart doesn't heal you, friends. It literally kills you. So what do we do? What do we do with all this pain, right? What do we do with uh, this longing for peace? How do we get it? We're in the middle of a sermon series here at Midtown on the Apostles' Creed. It's this ancient statement of Christian faith that's been articulated by Christians for thousands of years all around the world. It's the very core of what we believe. And today, we're arriving at a very curious phrase, the forgiveness of sins. You guys, those words are some of the most radical words that we can affirm in our world. Because the world out there doesn't believe in those words, and it never has. Human nature has always sought vengeance. For us to affirm the forgiveness of sins is for us to affirm something that other people outside of this room won't affirm and won't praise. Something that seems wrong, something that seems unjust in the world. We say no to vengeance as Christians. And we say that peace and restoration comes a different way. It comes through forgiveness. But what do we mean, right? What do we mean when we say that? Because Sometimes it can feel like forgiveness is just letting things slide. It's just excusing badness in the world. What do we mean when we say the forgiveness of sins? I think there's no better place to answer that question than uh, in the words of Jesus. So if you have a Bible, turn in it with me. Uh, we're going to be reading from the Gospel of Matthew. Chapter 18 is where we're going to be. So once you flip to Matthew, that's the first book in your New Testament. Uh, flip to the big number 18 and then down to the little number 21. Verse 21 is where we'll start. Uh, we're going to have the words behind me on the screen if you'd like to follow along. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, also, there's Bibles on the back table. If you don't have one, take one on your way out. That is our gift to you. We'd love for you to read your Bible at home and with us on Sunday mornings. Matthew 18, starting in verse 21. Then Peter came and said to him, Jesus, Lord, if another member of the church sins against me, how often should I forgive? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, not seven times, but I tell you, 77 times. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. When he began the reckoning, one who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. And as he could not pay, his Lord ordered him to be sold, together with his wife and children and all his possessions, and payment to be made. So the slave fell on his knees before him, saying, have patience with me and I will pay everything. And out of pity for him, the Lord of that slave released him and forgave him the debt. But that same slave 
as he went out, came upon one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii, and seizing him by the throat, he said, pay what you owe. I am vengeance. Then his fellow slave fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me, I will pay you. But he refused. Then he went and threw him into prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their Lord all that had taken place. Then his Lord summoned him and said to him, You wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not have had mercy on your fellow slave as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his Lord handed him over to be tortured until he should pay his entire debt. And so my heavenly Father will also do to every one of you if you do not give your brother or sister, forgive your brother or sister from your heart. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I used to work a couple years ago as a financial bookkeeper. I was responsible for collecting debts and managing accounts. And in that role, we had the opportunity to write off certain debts that were owed to us. We could write them off with permission from our manager. But those debts always had to be a certain amount, a certain small amount. And if they exceeded that small amount, we couldn't write it off. Some debts were too big to, to just simply forgive. And what we learn in this passage is that Peter would have been great at that job that I used to work. He would have been a great bookkeeper. He's paying a lot of attention to the amount of forgiveness here. And we want to keep in mind, Peter has listened pretty well to Jesus at this point. Jesus has been talking about forgiveness, and Peter actually starts believing that forgiveness is important. Earlier in Matthew, Jesus said these words to Peter and the disciples. If you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. And to Peter's credit, he seems to get it. He's like, forgiveness, I'm on board. Sounds great, Jesus. But how much? Like, when do we cut off the stream? Because if it's really unlimited, people are going to take advantage of that, right? People will take advantage of my forgiveness. They'll step all over me if I forgive. So seven times, maybe? Which was actually a pretty generous amount, given what much of the Old Testament has to say on forgiveness. Is that what we're supposed to do? And Jesus' response is an interesting one here. He says, forgive 77 times. Some of your translations might say 70 times 7. Uh, the number is actually not the point here. Jesus isn't advocating for a literal number that we have to track. That's why we as Christians don't have tally books out right? every time we forgive someone. He's giving a large number to communicate to us that forgiveness is actually unlimited. The Christian's response to pain and injustice is never to give up on the one who has inflicted that pain and injustice on us or on others. There are no exceptions to Jesus' statement here. He doesn't say forgive unless the harm done to you is a little too big. He doesn't say forgive unless there are extenuating circumstances according to Article 4, Section 8 of the Christian Handbook. Right? That's not how this works. It's actually really remarkably simple. Forgive and forgive and forgive. Imagine the awkward silence after this. Because these disciples, they care about justice. They care about doing the right thing. They're great bookkeepers, just like we are. So how is it that Jesus advocates for unlimited forgiveness? Doesn't God care about the right thing? Doesn't God care about justice? How does he just let things slide? How is this forgiveness a thing? What even is this forgiveness? And that's an important question, by the way. What sort of forgiveness is Jesus commanding? That's a great question to ask, because our world throws the word forgive and forgiveness around a lot, but I don't know that we fully understand it or grasp it very much. 
And so Jesus decides with his disciples here, questioning what this forgiveness really looks like, he decides to tell a story because that's what Jesus likes to do. He tells a story to them to communicate about this forgiveness. And there's three things we learn about forgiveness here from Jesus's parable. We learn first that God's character is, at its core, forgiveness. We learn second what forgiveness really is and isn't, the definition of forgiveness. And then we learn that God's people and the church are to be the vehicle of forgiveness to the world. So first, God's character at its core is forgiveness. Right at the start of the story, we get a king who's trying to shore up his accounts. He's trying to balance his books. And he comes across the books of a servant who owes 10,000 talents, which doesn't sound like a lot to us today because we don't deal in talents. It's a huge sum of money. One talent in that day was equal to 6,000 denarii, and one denarius, or denarii, was roughly equivalent to one day's work. So one talent is 6,000 days' work. 10,000 talents is 60,000 days of work. I've done the math for you. You don't have to do the math. That's over 200 years of work if you were to pay this off. 200 years, which means it's impossible, right? Especially in an ancient world where average lifespan's like 30s, 40s, not going to live to pay this off. Jesus is communicating a huge, insurmountable amount of debt. He's exaggerating for a point here. And in case you miss it, in the next verse he says, the servant could not pay. So it's impossible to pay this thing off. You guys, Jesus here is communicating a hard but true reality that we, as humans, are the servant here. Every single one of us has amassed an insurmountable debt to God. Every single one of us has spurned God in one way or another. Every single one of us has harmed the image bearers of God in our fellow humans. And every one of us has neglected the the gift of God's creation in the world to us. We've severed our connection with the source of life. We fail to be truly human, every one of us in our own ways. Our books are irreparably unbalanced. And in our world, we tend not to like this understanding of ourselves because our culture tends to assume that humans are by and large pretty good. We tend to think that, yeah, we're not perfect, right? Nobody's perfect. But if we really set our minds right and we really put in good effort, we can balance our books. We don't really need this massive forgiveness. I can be a good person in my life. And that notion usually fails us. When we actually inspect it in our lives, it fails us over and over. On a large scale, have humans ever developed a good society Have we ever been rid of all the evil that we loathe and hate in our world? No. There's been no project of human goodness by our own effort that has brought life and flourishing to all things as we long for. It's never happened. But even in our own individual lives, think about the times that you've set out to do better in your life by your own effort. I'm just going to will my way to being more generous and more selfless. Don't things always keep coming back? Aren't there always moments where you're like, man, I... I haven't done this. We know this cycle. We commit to being generous, and the next day we become stingy. We commit to being selfless, and the next day we're consumed with ourselves. We commit to loving our neighbors, and then we hate people who disagree with us. It's like there's something in us that we can't shake off. And that's because there is. That's what Christians mean when we talk about sin. It's this unshakable reality that all of us, in one way or another, are missing the mark of being human. And no matter how hard we try, no matter how many years we work, we can't seem to change it on our own effort. Which means every one of us stands before God with an unpayable debt. We need to be restored to our true humanity. 
And thankfully, we get restored. That's what this story is saying. That's the good news that follows the bad news. The king in this story responds to the servant in pity. And that word pity implies this deep, comprehensive, robust, from deep within your heart and your bowels, this compassion on another person. He feels it. It messes with the king. And he has deep, overwhelming love for the servant. And he says, the debt's gone. It's forgiven. Entirely, fully, freely. Friends, there is no debt, no sin, no thought you've thought or action you've lived, no habit you've formed that can keep you from the love and grace of God. Nothing. That's the message of Jesus. Every single one of us is far more broken and sinful than we could imagine and far more loved and cared for by Jesus than we could ever hope. It's the gospel message. Every one of us is this servant, irreparably broken and incredibly forgiven. And I want to stop briefly here and just get out of church mode and listening mode and note-taking mode. Do we actually believe this? Do we actually? Do we actually think that this is what God looks like, that God's love is really this big? Because oftentimes I don't. I forget I lose sight of this. I think that, well, yeah, God forgave me, but I've kind of got to make up for it now, right? Now i got to keep my life together. Do we really believe that God's forgiveness is this overwhelming? We often don't because, friends, we often don't love ourselves or others as much as God loves us and others. The unending grace of God exposes for us the legalism of our own hearts. We are less forgiving of ourselves and others than God is. And this plays itself out in our conversations with Jesus all the time. They often look something like this. We approach Jesus, we say, okay, forgiveness, it's great, right? Thanks, Jesus. But I don't think you fully understand. I've really messed up in a lot of ways. And Jesus' response to us is always, I know. And then we say, well, sure, I mean, you know most of it, but there's some nasty stuff like really deep inside me that other people don't see. And Jesus says, I know it all. And we say, okay, yeah, you know most of it, but... Really, Jesus, this is about the past and the present, and I'm not really sure about the future. This is still in me today. Jesus says, I understand. But I'm not really sure I can change this on my own anytime soon, right? I'm not sure I can do this. And Jesus says, well, that's the only kind of person I'm here to help. But the burden of my brokenness, the burden of my sin and pain, it gets heavier all the time. And Jesus says, then let me carry it. It's too much to bear, we say, and Jesus says, not for me. And it's not just that I've harmed others, Jesus. I don't think you understand. I've harmed you. This is sin against you. And Jesus says, then I'm the one most suited to forgive it. Jesus, if you forgive me now, eventually you're going to get fed up with me because things keep coming up in my life. And Jesus says, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. You guys, If you have conversations with God like this, where you can't quite fully grasp the fullness of this forgiveness, remember what Jesus says in this parable. God knows. He knows every debt, every bit of it. He knows what's happened before. He knows what's happening now. And he knows what's going to happen in the future. And he forgives you. He's thrown the whole business of bookkeeping out the door. The books are burned up. He's taking care of them. 
And that means the only thing left for us is to believe that that's true about who God is, to really trust that that's true and to rely upon that in our lives. That his mercies are new every day. Our job is just simply to believe that God's forgiveness is really that powerful. In a world of unending debt, we have a grace that matches every dollar. And when we hear that, there's still a part of us that can kind of plead for justice, right? We think, okay, that's great, forgiveness, but what about all this pain? What do I do with all of this that's left over? And that brings us to the second part of the story. We learn what forgiveness is and what it isn't here. Notice the servant's response when he finds out about his debt here, which he's probably already known. He's accumulated it. It's kind of on him. Uh, But he says back to the king, have patience with me, and I'll pay you everything. Do you hear how nonsensical that is now that we know the amount of debt that he owed? It doesn't make sense. He could never pay this back. He doesn't seem to understand that the debt is too big. There's no undoing what's already been done. There's no changing the current state of things. He doesn't really understand what forgiveness and grace look like. Many of us, like the servant, misunderstand forgiveness in our day. We say things like forgive and forget. Friends, that's impossible. There is no ability to forget what has been done to us or by us. It can't be erased. Forgiveness isn't amnesia. And we can't make it up to people. Sometimes we say, let me make it up to you. As if whatever action I perform could actually erase the pain that I've caused. That pain is still there. And it can't be erased. It's happened. And that's true, by the way, even in cases of vengeance. Vengeance can't get rid of the pain that's already been inflicted. There's no amount of jail time that can bring back a murdered family member. There's no amount of punishment that can undo the pains of genocide. They can't be undone. And so the question for us should never be, what can erase the pain or make up for the pain? That can't happen. Instead, the question is, what can sever the chains of power that pain still holds over us? What can bring peace and restoration in the middle of the pain? And that's what's so remarkable about the king's reply here. He doesn't, for an instant, allow the servant to try to make anything up. He doesn't say, well, yeah, work your way back and we'll figure it out. He doesn't let him start at all because he knows how silly it is. He knows that this debt can't be canceled out no matter how hard the servant works. Instead, he just says, you're forgiven. You are free from your debt. Do you see how costly that forgiveness is? The debt didn't get forgotten and it didn't get made up for Someone had to take on that debt, had to absorb that debt. It's the king. The king ends up saying, you know what? My books aren't going to get balanced. This can't be compensated for, and we can't just excuse it out of the way. I have to take this debt on. But rather than punishing and rather than erasing here, what the king does is remove the control that the debt had over the relationship. It no longer has control over them. It means that the king is willing to die to keeping tabs on this servant because the king is so committed to being back in restored relationship with that servant. That's what forgiveness looks like, friends. It means being willing to die to our bookkeeping in order to see restored relationship come, in order to see restored humanity come. And that means forgiveness will always go straight into the mess. It has to. It has to address it and then take it on and absorb it. 
there's a guy named Desmond Tutu. He actually passed away this last year. He was an incredible theologian and a minister. He worked in South Africa uh, during apartheid, which was a terrible time of segregation and genocide there. And he wrote a book called The Book of Forgiving based on much of his experience in South Africa. And he identified four different stages to forgiveness that are important for us. If we want to understand forgiveness, we have to see these four stages happening. The first stage is to tell the story. Speak the facts of what has happened. Tell the truth. And you should do this with a trusted loved one, someone who you really know deeply, who is a safe place. And then he also says, consider, if possible, telling the truth to the person who has most harmed you. Now, he says, if possible, because in some cases that's not possible, and in some cases it actually brings more harm than good. Sometimes that person, it actually opens the door for them to harm us more. So it's not always possible. But he says, when possible, tell the truth to the person who's harmed you. And if you can't even tell it to them directly, write them a letter. Don't send it, but write them a letter. Speak it to them. Forgiveness always starts with telling the truth fully. It starts with naming the immensity of the debt. And then the second stage is naming the hurt. So linking together the emotions that that truth has well, brought about. That means that feelings are okay when we've been harmed. You don't squelch the feelings in forgiveness. You don't stuff them down. You feel them deeply. So it's okay to be angry. It's okay to be sad. It's okay to grieve over what's happened. Don't overlook the emotions. Name them. And Desmond Tutu said, this is often the longest part of forgiveness. It takes a while to really unpack the fullness of what's been done to us and around us. And that's okay. We're allowed to name these feelings. We're allowed to bring them before God. We're allowed to bring them in the midst of trusted others. That's a crucial part of forgiveness. Name it fully. Don't shove it under the rug. Real restoration can't happen in that way. And then finally, when you've named the hurt, he says, grant forgiveness. Grant forgiveness to the one who has harmed you. And remember, that's a choice. You don't have to do it. The world gives you plenty of options. The world says you can harbor resentment and vengeance. Jesus says the best way to peace is restoration, is forgiving here. And that means each one of us has to choose it for ourselves. I can't choose to forgive the people that you need to forgive, and you can't choose to forgive the people I need to forgive. We have to do that on our own. And I will walk with you in it. I would love, there's plenty of people in this room who will walk with you in it, who are trusted people, but you have to do the forgiving. And then finally, when that forgiveness is granted, he says the fourth step is renewing or releasing the relationship. He said renewal is always the preference if you can. But again, not always the case. Sometimes the other party doesn't want to see a renewed relationship. So in those cases, sometimes you have to release it. But whatever you do, renew or release, you have to complete this fourth step. This is the completion of forgiveness. And he tells an example of a bishop that he knew in South Africa at the time. Bishop Malusi was his name. He was arrested and tortured in South Africa because he fought against apartheid, fought against genocide and segregation and the like. The government weren't big fans of him. And he was tortured in prison. But rather than that torture sparking revenge in him, it sparked forgiveness. He reported to Desmond Tutu that he had this insight in the middle of being imprisoned. He saw that these were God's children and that they were losing their humanity and that someone needed to help them restore it. Someone needed to show them what it meant to be truly human. And so he committed the rest of his life to fighting apartheid and genocide and segregation. And he crossed lines of oppression that people thought couldn't be crossed. He mended relationships. He renewed brokenness in the world because that's what forgiveness can do. 
You guys, this process, it's the very heartbeat of Christianity. It's the example that Jesus gives us on the cross, and it's the only way to freedom in life. On the cross, Jesus absorbs all of the violence that we've inflicted on one another. He is the king that absorbs the debt. He doesn't ignore it. He doesn't excuse it. He absorbs it. And then he says, after absorbing that debt, we're going to leave that in the grave. Bookkeeping's over. You're forgiven. And so when we say we believe in the forgiveness of sins, we're saying that Christ has paid the debt for us and for everyone. Friends, in this story, it is only the forgiveness of the king that allows the servant to not be defined by his debt any longer. That's the only thing that prevents him from being free of his debt, the forgiveness of the king. There was no punishment he could have served. There was no payment he could have made that would compensate for that debt. It is only in the forgiveness of Christ that we cease to be defined by our debt and that we are made children of God again. There is no amount of religiosity, no amount of songs you can sing, no amount of prayers you can pray that can do that. It's only the power of Christ in the cross. And here's the good news. It's happened. Forgiveness is made available for every one of us here in Christ. The debt is dead because the king has died to it before we ever did a thing. You guys, in Christ we are forgiven. Are we really willing to believe that? Are we really willing to trust that? Are we really willing to believe that Jesus has forgiven not just us, but everyone out there? Because when we do, it's going to change our behavior. It's going to change our lives. That's the third part of this story here. The third thing we learn about forgiveness, that the church, the forgiven people, is to be the vehicle of forgiveness in the world. What does the servant do after he leaves? He goes immediately. There's no time. It says as soon as he went out, he runs straight to the person who owes him a small amount of money, the equivalent of, at that time, what would have been about four months' wages. And he holds him by the throat. He says, you owe me. Pay up. You guys, this is immediately revealing here that this servant has not understood what's just happened. The servant has been forgiven, and he hasn't gotten any of it. None of it's stuck. He's still living with a bookkeeping mentality. And so he's immediately bringing that mentality into his relationships. Friends, those who know they've been forgiven will always be the ones who extend forgiveness. And if we find in ourselves an unwillingness to forgive, it's likely that we haven't known or experienced the fullness to which we've been forgiven. If we find in us a hesitation to forgive others, it's likely that we haven't fully realized the amount that we've been forgiven for. That's what's happened here for the servant. And did you notice the parallel that Jesus makes here between this servant who owes a small amount to his fellow servant and the, the unforgiving servant and the amount he owes to the king? They say the same words, almost verbatim, to the person that they owe money to. Have patience, I'll pay it back. They both say that same thing. This unforgiving servant just was on his knees saying those words, and now he sees someone saying the same thing to him. This servant is a mirror to him. He's supposed to see himself in that servant, and he fails to. Friends, when we fail to see our own brokenness, then we can never see the other person as a broken person who harmed us out of own, their own ignorance or pain. When we fail to see our own brokenness, we can never see the other as a broken person who has harmed us out of their own ignorance or pain. But when we realize how we've been forgiven, Every person we now encounter is a mirror to us. 
we see in them a need for the same grace that we need. This is how we love our neighbor as ourselves. And it's funny, other servants see this, and they're like, oh, shoot. Somebody's got to go tell the king what just happened, right? He's not going to believe what this servant just did. And so they go and tell the king. The king brings the servant before him, and the king says, man, what are you doing? You missed the whole point of this thing. And so if you want me to behave in the way that you are behaving, I will. You owe the debt. Go into debtor's prison. Pay it back. That's what the king does. He basically lives up to the expectations of this unforgiving servant. And that ending can feel a little tough for us. Right? We thought this king was forgiving. How's their judgment at the end? Right? How does that work? Well, look closely at how Jesus tells the story here. The king, when the initial servant owes the huge debt, the king doesn't call that servant wicked. Did you catch that? He only calls him wicked at the end of the story when he's failed to forgive his neighbor. The wickedness of the servant is in his failure to forgive, not in his sinfulness, not in his debt. And so we learn here that the first part of the story is telling us that none of our debts, none of our sins or our errors or wrongdoings can ever be an obstacle to the forgiveness of God. And the second part of the story tells us that the only thing that can still separate us from that king is our unwillingness to forgive. That's the only thing. Our unwillingness to receive the forgiveness that we've gotten from the king and then our unwillingness to extend that forgiveness to others. The only thing that's unforgivable in this story is the unwillingness to forgive others. That's the only thing here. And that is what the servant does wrong. Judgment comes when this servant fails to realize his own forgiven state and extend it to his neighbors. There's a tremendous quote by a guy named Robert Farrar Capon. He writes about this in his book on the parables. He says this, In heaven, there are only forgiven sinners. There are no good guys, no upright, successful types who, by dint of their own integrity, have been accepted into the great country club in the sky. There are only failures, only those who've accepted their deaths in their sins and who've been raised up by the king who himself died that he might live. But in hell, too, there are only forgiven sinners. He forgives the badness of even the worst of us willy-nilly, and he never takes back that forgiveness. That means that the sole difference, therefore, between heaven and hell is that in heaven, the forgiveness is accepted and passed along, and in hell, it's rejected and blocked. In heaven, the death of the king is welcomed and becomes the doorway to new life in the resurrection. In hell, the old life of the bookkeeping world is insisted on and becomes forever the pointless torture that it always was. The only thing that can keep us out of the joy of the resurrection is to join the unforgiving servant in his refusal to die, to die to bookkeeping, to die to this method of trying to pay back our debts. Friends, the pathway to life is here in forgiveness, in realizing that we've been forgiven fully and extending that forgiveness to others. That's what brings us peace and restoration, and that's the church's job. That's why the church is so important, because all of us in here have heard this message, have in one way experienced this, and we get to be the people who go out into a world that needs peace, that needs restoration, that needs renewed relationship. The church gets to be the people through whom Christ mends the broken world, that's our role. That's our job. That's what the servant fails to do, and that's why he gets well, what he actually asked for of other people around him. Those who have been forgiven little will forgive little, and those who forgive much will forgive 
or who have been forgiven much will forgive much. Friends, when we say we believe in the forgiveness of sins in this creed, we're not just saying a nice, fun idea. We're not just talking about a theory of forgiveness. We're claiming allegiance to a different way of being in the world, a different way of being out there beyond these doors, a way of being that tells the truth, that names the hurt, that grants forgiveness, and that seeks renewed relationship. That's our commitment as Christians. And that sort of thing can bring healing in a broken world. That can start here in Midtown, in our midst, amongst one another, and out into the world as we need to go. And so we just have one choice left to make. Will we believe in the forgiveness of sins? Let's pray.